I wonder how often you think about this. God wrote a book. God wrote a book. His words, his thoughts, his desires, his promises, and his plans, they were put into words. Think about this, church. God took all these things, he put them in words, put them on pages, and they've been given to us, preserved for us. A book written by God himself, revealing himself to us so that we can know him, so we can know what he's like, so we can be equipped to be his kind of people in the world. God wrote a book. So we want to devote ourselves to it, to knowing it, so that we can know him and so that we can allow his words to change us. The psalmist says, his word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. With that in mind, why don't you take your Bibles, the book that God wrote to reveal himself to us. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 5. This morning, we're going to consider verses 1 to 20. And as you turn there, I want to begin by encouraging you to consider the question that we ended chapter 4 with, that we ended last week with. The question of the disciples. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Do you remember the scene? The disciples on a boat, now in a still sea. A steed that had been raging, but now has been calmed by Christ. And they realize, for the first time in this way, we are in the presence of God. And we see that their fear of the storm turned to a fear of the reality that they, 12 men on a boat, were in the presence of God Almighty. Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus had spoken, and with his words, he'd quieted, quieted, that's a hard word. He had quieted the wind and the sea. He spoke, and with his words, he stopped a violent storm. That was last week. Jesus has the power to calm a chaotic storm. And this week, we're going to consider this, that Jesus has the power to calm a chaotic man. A man possessed by demons. This, this passage, Mark 5, 1 to 20, it's an incredible view of the power and the authority of Jesus. We're going to see that at the mere presence of Christ, demons tremble. And with his words, Jesus commands and they must respond. So last week we ended with this question, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And this week, perhaps the question that we could summarize our passage with is this. Who then is this that even demons submit and obey him? We've said from our beginning of the study of the Gospel of Mark that Mark's aim, his purpose in writing this account, probably given by Peter to him, the reason he's writing it is that we would see Jesus as the Son of God and then that we would submit ourselves to him as his disciples. Mark wants us to see Jesus 
And not only to see him, but to see him rightly, to see him for who he is. So we have these examples of his power and of his authority and his deity. So Mark wants us to see him, but not only to see him, but to respond, to become his disciples. It's not an easy task, trying to behold Jesus in all his glory. And then not only to see him, but to commit ourselves to him. But that is the task before us as we come to the Gospel of Mark. That's the task before us again this morning. And I started the way I did because I just want to encourage you to be thankful for the light that we have been given. You know what I mean by that? Like, God wrote a book. Not only did God come and live among us, not only did he take on flesh and live on earth, but by his sovereign plan, he inspired men to write down these accounts of our Lord so that we would have them, so that we could know him and then have the opportunity to respond to what we know to be true of him. So that's where we're headed. And I'll tell you on the front end that you've heard this sermon before. You heard it last week to a certain extent. It's very much the same passage, but with a different kind of storm, a different kind of problem, and a different manifestation. But what we're going to see, the big idea is that Jesus is powerful and that Jesus is God. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who in it then is this that even demons submit and obey? But in addition to that, what we're also going to see is that this passage reminds us of our calling to go and to tell others about the power of Jesus that we've seen. To go and to help them see that this God who we have beheld is powerful and great is to be known. In the passage, we're going to see a man who is set free by the power of Jesus. And then Jesus sends him to go and tell others about what the Lord has done for him. So our message kind of breaks up into two parts, maybe not quite evenly. But first, we're going to behold the power of God. We're going to consider that he is God, that he is all-powerful. And then we're going to be encouraged to follow the example of this man, to heed the words of our Lord, to go and to tell how much the Lord has done for us. So we recognize his power has been displayed in our transformation. So three main points. If you're taking notes and if you don't have the notes with you, three, three points. The deity of Jesus, Jesus is God and has the authority of God. The power of Jesus, he has no rival and all must submit, submit to him. And third, the mission of Jesus. Jesus came to save and we are called to participate in that mission. So that's where we're headed. Before I read the text, just I want you to remember the context one more time. Let's go back to the day before Jesus teaching on the sea. Remember, floating platform, crowds on the shore, Jesus teaching. At the end of the day, Jesus tells his disciples we're going to cross over. They are on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. He tells them we're going over to the other side, to the eastern side, and they set sail. It's on that night that they experience a storm. A storm that leaves the disciples in fear and doubt. Jesus stands up and with his words, calms the storm and brings a new kind of fear for the disciples as they consider what they've just witnessed. That's a big night, right? Storm, power of Jesus revealed, 
Everyone's a little on edge now, not only because of the storm, not only because they almost died, but because they've realized now for the first time in this way, they're in the presence of God. And the boat hits the shore and immediately they're confronted with this new event, this new demonstration of the power of Christ. So that's where we are. Mark chapter five, and we'll start reading in verse one. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him a man out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He had lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Then notice this. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs that we may enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered in the pigs, And that herd, numbering about 2,000 pigs, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told to the city and the country, and people came to see what it was that happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. May God be blessed and strengthen us through the reading and preaching of his word. You know, as we read the Gospels, there's some stories that have nothing more than a skeleton. Not many details and we are left a lot to our imagination. That's not the case here. In this passage, Mark paints a picture. And hopefully, as we read it, hopefully you recognize, we don't have to work very hard to to picture the scene and even to, to put ourselves in there to sense the emotion and the humanity. Consider the disciples probably groggy. We don't know exactly how long it would have taken them. Maybe they stayed and fished, or maybe maybe it's just dawn. We don't know what time of day they arrived. They left across the lake in the evening. It usually takes a few hours to cross, but there was a storm and a lot that's happened. If it is morning, chances are they have not slept much. 
The boat lands on the shore. The disciples' heads are spinning, trying to process all that they've seen and heard. And picture this, okay? You've likely been up all night. It's been an unusual night. You're in a bit of a fog. Jesus starts climbing out of the boat, and as he does, here comes a man, naked, scarred, open wounds, charging towards the boat. That's a wake-up call, isn't it? You ever walked out your front door in the morning and had a naked man running towards you? Quite the wake-up call. This is what happens. Once again, Jesus and his disciples, just on the heels of the storm on the sea, find themselves in a precarious situation. And remember, the disciples don't know anything about this man. They know what they can see and what a sight it is. Mark gives us the backstory. You ever think about how the writers of Scripture knew these things? Peter, this is probably his account, so he was probably talking to the people after the fact in the community about this man. And we have quite a bit of a description here. Verses 2 to 5 describe the man and his situation. And honestly, tell me afterwards if you can think of another. This may be one of the saddest portrayals of any person's situation in Scripture. The way he's described the life that he's living, he's described more like an animal than a person. It's a man whose life has been wrecked and is in shambles. We're told quite a bit. We're told by Mark that he's possessed by demons and that he's living in a cemetery. Now remember at this time, cemeteries were generally caves. And here's this man, demon-possessed, and he's living in these tomb caves. He's a man living among dead men's bones. And it's not just the quiet life of a recluse. He's dangerous. He has been a threat to those around him. We know that because Mark tells us that over and over, people had tried to contain him. They had tried putting chains on his hands and feet. They tried to contain him, but it was useless. It seems that he had an unnatural strength because he would break anything that was put on him. The chains that were put on his wrists and hands, he broke them apart. The shackles that were put on his feet, he burst them open. No one, the scripture says, was strong enough to subdue him. He was dangerous, unnaturally strong, raging, and mad. Not angry, but mad. Angry too, I think. Not just a danger to others, but a danger to himself. We read in verse 5 that every day, picture this. Luke says explicitly he was naked. So if you're wondering where that came from, it's from the Gospel of Luke. Wandering around this cemetery area without any clothes, screaming, yelling, taking rocks, and cutting himself. And can I just encourage you, church, to remember that this is a real human being, right? A man who very possibly had had a normal life before this. At some point, possessed by demons, now he's roaming a cemetery, naked, screaming, cutting himself, threatening himself and others. It's a shocking and a sad description of a person made in the image of God. Now brought to this point. Now consider the scene again, now that you have a, maybe a fuller picture of this man. Jesus stepping out of the boat and here comes this man charging. 
And we're not told this, but I have to think that the disciples, if they are awake, are starting to grab things out of the boat because we might be in for a fight, right? Here's this unusually strong, naked individual charging towards the boat. Maybe we are not welcome here. But as this man arrives to Jesus, he does not attack him. Do you recognize what he does instead? You assume attack. But when he gets to Jesus, he falls down before him. Verse 6. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran. And he fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of you, unclean spirit. I started by reminding us of the question the disciples asked. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who then is this that a man that no one could control, when the presence of God is sensed, falls down before him? It was becoming clear to the disciples after what they had seen the night before that they were in the presence, truly in the presence of God. And now we see further proof that Jesus is in fact God. On your notes, this is point one, the deity of Jesus. Here's a man, the entire community, a whole village of people were unable to contain. And they tried. They tried with chains. They tried with shackles. Imagine those planning meetings. Okay, we're going out again, guys. We have the chains, we have the locks, we're going to get him this time. But no matter what they did, they could not contain him. We're told that he was possessed by demons that were controlling him. But when Jesus arrives, he falls down before him. You see the contrast here? Now, as a side note, we took time when we were in chapter 1 to talk about demons, what they can do, what they can't do. I'm not going to take time again this morning to expound all of that. Just a short reminder, demons are emissaries, they're representatives of Satan. Think of them as soldiers in the army of the enemy, sent to oppose God and the things of God. And we see a, a real uptick in their activity during the time of Christ's time on earth. And, and they could inhabit or control a person, and that's what we see here. And we see his, the power of the demons, right? No one could restrain this man, this man but... Something happens when Jesus shows up. As soon as the boat hits the shore, the demons who had possessed this man recognize God has arrived and our fate is in his hands. It wouldn't help to run away. It wouldn't help to attack him. The demons recognize Jesus for who he is and they immediately, they start pleading for mercy. Just like the wind and the sea were subservient, to the words of Jesus, the demons were in complete subservience to Christ from the moment he arrived. I, and maybe, maybe you've heard people. I've read the New Testament. I know Jesus, but they probably haven't read it, but anyways. Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, that's not true. But even if it were true, even if he never made the claim for himself with his words, the things that we see leave no doubt. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who then is this that even demons fall to his feet and plead for mercy? 
Jesus is God. He's not just a good man. He's not just a wise prophet. He's not just a religious leader or a cult leader. Jesus Christ is God. We started this morning with our confession of faith. We believe he is and that he came and he accomplished what was needed for our salvation. Maybe this morning, this is what you need to, maybe, maybe you've had that conversation at work this morning, people questioning the deity of Christ. Can I just remind you that we can be confident Jesus Christ who lived on earth zero to 33 AD was God himself in the flesh. And we know it in part because of the things that he did. This demon-possessed man ran and fell before him, not to worship him, but to beg for mercy. What the demon says leaves no doubt of who Jesus is. Look what he said first. He says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? That title, most high God, it's used often in the Old Testament and quite often by Gentiles who are speaking of the God of Israel. You know, the nations all around Israel believed in various small G gods. But for all they had seen, the God of Israel came to be known as the most high God. We believe there's only one God, but this is an acknowledgement that among all the gods, the God of Israel is the most high. He's the one that all other powers and all other authorities are subject to. And so it's not insignificant that this demon-possessed man, a man possessed by emissaries of Satan, when he sees Jesus, refers to him as the son of the most high God. An acknowledgement that Jesus is the one with the power. He is the one with the final word. Their fate is in his hands. So he asks, okay, what's going on? What are you going to do with me, Jesus? Not let's fight and see who wins. I'm here, you're here, what is my fate? Think about that. It's an amazing Acknowledgement of subservience. And it's very similar. So think back to Mark chapter 1. Jesus teaching in the synagogue. A man stands up and opposes Jesus. A man also possessed by a demon. And listen to the similarity of what he said and how Mark describes it. Mark chapter 1 verse 23. A man with an unclean spirit cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Holy One of God. The demons knew who Jesus was. His disciples were just now starting to, to get a good idea, but they knew that the demons knew that he had the power to destroy them. And that's why in Mark 5, the demon says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. It's ironic. In an exorcism, it's common to hear someone appeal to a higher power to cast out the demon. It's ironic that the demon has no one else higher to appeal to but to God himself. So he appeals to God for help from God. <laughs> I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Or to use the language of chapter 1, don't destroy us. Don't send us to our final judgment. These demons had the power to control a man and to drive a whole community to fear. They were stronger than chains and untamable by men. But they knew that God controlled their fate. 
When they saw Jesus, they saw God. And I think as we say that, we may be inclined because we always see demons defeated to minimize in our minds the strength that they have. But I think Mark does better here in God inspiring this section in a way that frames and points us towards the power, not only of God, but of the demons. That these were a formidable opponent. Not for God, but powerful nonetheless. We see the threat that they were to this community. Just like the disciples couldn't control the storm, no one could control this man. And there are other indications in the passage of the the size and the vastness of the opponent. And I think Jesus wants everyone to know, I think there's a few things in this story that Jesus tried to help everyone who's watching to understand the, the magnitude of the situation because he, he asks the demon, what's your name? He, wants, he knows what he's going to say and he wants everyone to hear it. He asked the man, what's your name? Verse nine. And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Maybe people assume this is one really strong demon in this guy. Jesus gives him the opportunity to explain to everyone who may be listening what's actually happening here. What's a legion? Well, it's a military term. It's a a group of soldiers. And at this time, a Roman legion was upwards of 6,000 soldiers. Now, that's not to say there's 6,000 demons, but I think there is an indication there are many, many, maybe thousands of demons possessing this man, which tells us why, unlike another guy who can go into a synagogue and maybe be unnoticed, this guy is naked and cutting himself and untamable. There's a suggestion of the vastness of what has possessed this man. But remember this, that the scope and the power of the enemy reveals the scope and the power of the victor who defeats them. Let me say that again. The scope and the power of the enemy reveals the power and the scope of the victor who defeats them. Mark wants us to know the power of the demons in this situation. We're also going to see that they don't stand a chance, and they never did against Jesus. They know that Jesus has the power to destroy them, and they are begging for some kind of lesser outcome. In verse 10, we're told that they're begging for a chance to stay in the region. We won't try to unpack all the different reasons why maybe they wanted to stay there. It could just be, and this is kind of where I'm leaning, they just don't want to be sent to their final judgment. So let us, let us stay here. Don't send us where we don't want to go. And then they identify an option. Verse 11. There's a great herd of pigs feeding on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us let's go into the pigs. And he gave them permission. The unclean spirits come out of the man, and enter the pigs. Let's read it slowly. Let's think about what's going on. Let's think about who's watching, what they're seeing. As a man who's been mad is suddenly calm, like the storm was calm the night before, a madman becomes calm, and a herd of pigs, suddenly squealing and wild, run headlong into the sea and drown. And not just 10 pigs and not just 20 pigs, but 2,000 pigs run off a cliff and into the water. Why is that important? There's so much we could talk about with these pigs. But let me just say this. It, again, helps us to see 
the magnitude of the demons that were possessing this man. And it also helps us consider their aim. They wanted to destroy. They were destroying this man. And given the chance and given an opportunity, they destroyed these pigs. What we see in Jesus sending the demons to the pigs, or rather allowing them to do what they desired, we see their magnitude, the vastness of how many there were, and also their desire to destroy. But it also reveals that these demons, as vast and as powerful as they were, could only do what God allowed them to do. They needed his permission. They could not do it without his allowance. The demons know they can't stay where they are. They know Jesus is going to expel them from the man, and this is their request. There's 2,000 pigs. Send us to them. Don't destroy us. Don't send us out of the country. Let us stay here. Let us live among the pigs. And when we hear this, we may think, what's going on? Is Jesus, is this a negotiation? It may seem like the man, the demons, all of a sudden, they have a leg to stand on. They're negotiating. I think that's the wrong way to consider this. Jesus could have immediately destroyed them, but consider this. First, what we see through this process is that they couldn't do anything without the permission of Christ. Jesus, throughout, had the authority. And second, I think Jesus allowed this because it further reveals the magnitude and the nature of the demons. It showed his power in that there's proof of thousands of demons. It showed their intent, their intent to destroy. It's a confirmation that Jesus was not standing toe-to-toe with one demon. He was staring down and wielding his power over thousands of them. He let the pig... The demons go into the pigs and the pigs to go in the water so that everyone watching would know Jesus is the all-powerful one. We see their aim was to destroy. It's made clear not only through what he did to this man, but through the end of the pigs. Make no mistake, the demons were powerful, but they were completely at the mercy of the Son of the Most High God. So here we see the power of God. We saw it at the end of chapter 4 in his ability to speak calm over wind and waves. Now we see it in his ability to speak calm over a man. To send out what was tormenting him. We see the power of Jesus and the submission of the demons. We also see his power and the transformation that this man experienced. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told in the city and the country... And people started coming to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. Of course, with 2,000 pigs, they were there, they were feeding, there were people with them. So there's more who saw this event than Jesus and the disciples. There's these herdsmen and they, they run back into town to tell everyone what's happened. Maybe angry because... <laughs> The pigs they were in charge of are dead. If they were the owners, no doubt frustrated. If they were the servants, no doubt scared of what their fate would be. But they run into town to tell people what has happened. And for all the details Mark gives us, and we we really can't complain. He gives us a lot in this story. But what I want to know about is this chunk of time from when the pigs go in the water and the herdsmen leave to when people start coming. It doesn't just happen as quick as these verses read, right? They've got to go into town, start having some conversations. Could it be an hour? 
Could it be two hours before people start arriving? We don't know for sure. But think about what the conversations must have been like during that period of time. Jesus and his disciples with this man. Now for the first time possibly in years in his right mind. We know that people start arriving and when they arrive, this is what they see. A man sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. So consider the contrast. Before he was running, naked, and mad. And now he was sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. Three verbs that Mark uses to paint the picture of restoration, transformation, and peace. This is what God can do to a person ravaged. He can restore. He can transform. He can bring peace. We're going to talk more about this in a few minutes, but we see here, I'm sure, is a parable of the picture of the power of God to change a person. To defeat evil and to restore life to one previously ravaged. Should bring to mind for all of us what Jesus can do for us. You know what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And you could think, man, what a radical transformation. Running naked and mad to sitting clothed and sane. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immorality, sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. We were the naked and mad. Maybe not literally. But we were all ravaged. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And let me suggest to you what you hopefully know to be true. That what this man was experiencing was no more consuming and destroying than what you experienced. Your sin had left you in this state, but Jesus by his power has saved. We see a great picture of what that looks like here. Jesus changes people. He takes people who are dead in sin and have all the trappings of the wickedness of the world and he makes us into new people with new hearts and new affections. In the transform transformation of this man, we see a display of the power of God to overcome evil and a reminder of his power to set us free. We could take a whole rabbit trail about how this man never would want to return to that position. And how yet we are inclined to return to our sin from which we have been set free. This passage is full of acknowledgments of who Jesus is, of what he can do, that he is God. We see his power in the exorcism. We see his power in the transformation. We also see his power in how people respond to him. If we didn't know the story, here's, would you agree we assume that people are going to show up and they're going to see a changed man and they're going to clap and they're going to celebrate and they're going to throw a party. This man who is mad, this man who has been uh, just a burden, a terror, a nuisance, he's restored. Let's parade him to his home. 
That's not what happens. Verse 15. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man to the pigs. They, they described the power that Jesus had shown. Here's what happened. And they were afraid, and they begged Jesus to depart from that region. They may have been relieved that the madman was now sane, but they were terrified of someone who would have the power to control evil spirits. Does this sound familiar? The night before, the disciples were in fear of the storm, and they were relieved when it was calmed, but they were afraid as they recognized the power of God. And they reject Jesus. They see his power, but they don't trust it. It's worth noting that it's another picture of something we see so often. There are people confronted with the reality of Jesus, but they do not believe. Over and over the Gospels, people see the miracles they don't believe in. How many people today say, if I could only see a manifestation of the power of God, I would believe. And we see it here once again. The power of God on full display, and yet people will not believe. And maybe you go and you tell people what God has done in your life, like we're about to see, and still they do not believe. This should not surprise us. People see transformation. People see the power of God. But their hearts remain unconvinced. The townspeople didn't understand the power of God. They didn't understand the true nature of Jesus. But the one who was changed did. Look at verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, once again, we see Jesus conceding to what has been asked, but fulfilling his plan. He gets into the boat. The man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. Another thing you can look at later is this use of the word begged throughout. The demons begged, this man begs, the townspeople begged. He begged that he might be with Jesus, and Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. And the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. It's incredible. Before we talk about this man and his response, we're going to talk about that. But first, I want to zoom out and help you see the big picture of how Jesus is accomplishing his mission of salvation. Up to this point, the ministry of Jesus had all been on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. In Jewish cities, among Jewish people, in Jewish synagogues. And we know Jesus came to the Jews first. But that night after teaching to a group of mostly Jews, Jesus tells his disciples, let's go to the other side of the sea. Where? To a, a, a region called the Decapolis. It's ten cities, predominantly Gentile. Jesus says, let's go to the other side. We know Jesus did not come only to save Jews. He came to bring salvations for Jews and Gentiles to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And after spending so much time on the west side of Galilee, Jesus tells his disciples, we need to go over there. And Jesus knew how long he would be there, and he knew what he was going to do. He would only be there for a short time, but he would change a man, he would show his power, and he would release this man as a witness among the Gentiles. We know based on history that this is a Gentile region. We also see the, the pigs. 
which not, would not have been raised by Jews. These are unclean animals being raised in a Gentile area. But Jesus shows up in a place where the disciples most likely were uncomfortable. Shows his power, reveals who he is, changes the man's life, and commissions him as a witness. Uses this trivia later. Who was the first missionary sent by Jesus to the Gentiles? Arguably, a former demoniac. Changed by God and sent with a very simple task. Tell people what Jesus has done for you. There's a lot to be said for this man's transformation. First, it's an example of a true convert or a true disciple. We see his faith revealed in his desire to be with Jesus. The people have asked him to leave. Jesus concedes, but the man whose life has been changed, he begged, let me be with you, which is lost in our English translation. This, he's asking to be a disciple. He wants to be with Jesus, to spend life with Jesus. Let me be connected to you. I want to be with you. Let's not forget who this was just a couple of hours before. Ravaged and destroyed by demons, but he has been set free. And his first inclination is not to go home, not to get back to his job, not to get back to his family. I want to be with the one who has changed me. I want to know him. I want to learn from him. I want to see what he has the power to do. Let me be with you. It's a good example of the proper response for anyone who's been changed. Let's remember that we too were ravaged and headed for destruction. But if you were in Christ and Jesus has given you new life, the only right response is the desire to be his disciple. I want to be with you. I want to learn with you. I want to see your power. Maybe you responded like that at some point and the fervor has died or slowed or dulled. Can I encourage you to remember that you were a madman naked and running? And you have been set free and transformed. And can I encourage you to long to be with Jesus. To see him and to know him and to see his power on display. The man's response was, let me be with you. And Jesus said, I've got a plan for you. Jesus did not permit him to come. We could talk about how maybe Jesus didn't want a Gentile to come back to a Jewish place. That might be a distraction. That might not be helpful. I think Jesus was ready to send a missionary, to send a man to the Gentiles, 10 cities called the Decapolis. This is your mission field. He says to him, go home to your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has shown you mercy. And I don't know if there's a more clear and concise statement in all of scripture of what it looks like to be a witness for Jesus. You hear what he says? Here's what you do. Okay, this is your evangelism training. Go home, go to your friends, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he's had mercy on you. I think sometimes we can really overcomplicate how we think about sharing our faith. And sure, there is a place for apologetics, and we should want to be able to answer tough questions with faithful answers. Don't miss what Jesus tells this man to do. It's so instructive and it's so basic. 
Go tell people how much the Lord has done for you. Tell them that he's shown mercy on you. So I have to ask you, church, how often are you talking to other people about how much the Lord has done for you? Or maybe I should ask this first. Do you believe that the Lord has done much for you? Do you recognize the mercy you've been shown? And if you have a hard time with that, picture the madman and recognize that was you. And you've been set free. You have much to talk about. You have been shown great mercy. Let's not forget how lost and hopeless we were. We were dead in our sins. And some of you can give testimony to really specific ways that sin was destroying you. All of us had the penalty of sins over us, headed towards death and hell. But through the mercy and grace of Jesus, we've been forgiven and set free. This is our story. And as I was writing that, I, the, the words of the song we sing so often came to my mind. I once was lost in darkest night. Yet I thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. If you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And as I beheld God's love displayed, that you suffered in my place, you bore the wrath reserved for me, now all I know is grace. This is your story if you're in Christ. And we should want to tell others what God has done for us. And while all of us have been equally saved from sin, some of you have incredible and tangible examples of what the change of God looks like. Some of you have been saved from addiction. You've been set free from destructive patterns of sin. Friends, you should never tire of telling others what the Lord has done for you. I think sometimes we have the inclination to be embarrassed of our past and to put on this strong front. I'm a Christian now. Don't be afraid to pull back that curtain and to let others know, maybe your coworkers, maybe those who didn't know you prior to faith, and let them know who you were and the power of God to save you. Isn't that what Jesus told this man to go do? Remind them that you were the madman and the change that's been given. We should never tire of telling others what the Lord has done for us. Some of you were liars, dishonest, selfish, and proud. But you've experienced the change that only God can give. You should never tire of telling others what the Lord has done for you, how you've been shown mercy. Some of you were hateful, angry, full of lust and greed. And God has given you victory and freedom. You should never tire of do, telling what the Lord has done for you, how he has shown mercy on you. All of us were sinners, sinning against God and others, deserving of death and hell, and we should never tire of telling others how much the Lord has done for us, that he has shown us mercy. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, I get it. It's intimidating to talk about those things. Some of those things I haven't talked about in years. Let me suggest something. Maybe we could start here. Start by telling other believers in Christ what Christ has done for you. Tell someone else in our church what Christ has done for you. 
Not only will it help you start getting the words, I guarantee you it would be an encouragement to your brothers and sisters to hear what the Lord has done for you. And that doesn't even mean you have to go back to your time of salvation. Maybe it's what God has done for you this year or this month or this week. We should talk much about how much the Lord has done for us. And we can start by having those conversations among ourselves, but it should not stop there. We should go to others and extend those conversations to all around us. This was the instruction of Jesus to that former demoniac. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he's had mercy on you. And what did he do? He went away and he began to proclaim in all the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Another story I would love to hear. Jesus implies that he has a home and that he has friends. What a homecoming that must have been. When a son, father perhaps, maybe husband, who they had considered long dead. He pictured the prodigal son. Is that dad clothed and in his right mind? And some of you have experienced that change. And what I'm telling you is go home, go back to the people who knew who you were before, who experienced your sin and who you were mean to and angry towards and hateful towards, and go back and tell them, God has changed me and he has shown me mercy. And he can do the same for you. I wonder how many of us have left lives behind and we've just never gone back. And it's a gift that God brings us into the church and we get new friends and new family should cherish that but we must also go back go back to those people you used to know and help them understand how much Christ has done for you and they may shake their heads and wonder how could this happen I don't know that you could really be that changed and this is where we had the chance to tell them of the power of Christ and that's really the big idea of this passage What's the man proclaiming? That Jesus is God, that Jesus is powerful, that Jesus has come to save. And I'll end similar to the way we did last week. This passage should give us a big view of Jesus, of who he is as God. He yields his power, he does whatever he wishes, and part of whatever he wished was to lay down his life for us, to go as a sheep to the slaughter and not open his mouth. He came to display his power and his deity through death and through his resurrection. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who then is this that even demons submit to him? Who then is this that all who call upon his name will be saved? It's my prayer that this week we'll have a bigger view of Jesus. That we'll be more convinced of who he is and of his power. And we'll be faithful to tell others how much he has done for us in the mercy that we have been shown. May God accomplish these things in us as we see him clearly.